HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your Fairway Honey today. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, here on Heritage Radio Network. And it is a hot summer day here in New York City. But that's all right, because we are going to be talking about something that could really hold the heat. What would that be? How about cast iron? And here to talk about cast iron, and particularly cast iron cookware is what we're talking about, is Joel Schiff and Stacy Harwood. Joel is probably one of the foremost collectors of cast iron cookware in the U.S. And uh, he, in fact, if I can just read a quote from the Wall Street Journal, who wrote a wonderful article on Joel and his collection, says that one of his persistent desires is to establish the Museum of the Hearth and Kitchen. The idea is to trace the history of pre-modern cooking from Stone Age until about 1950, or I guess maybe we could expand that a little further, with exhibits, reenactments, and an on-site restaurant where chefs would prepare meals using bygone techniques. Well, Joel is indeed, hes he has probably over, I would say by now, eight to 10,000 pieces. He, he counted it at 7,000 at one time. His apartment, there's a picture of him in his apartment, and it is just crammed to the ceiling with cast iron pieces. Someone who has seen that collection is with us too, my friend, uh, Stacy Harwood. Stacy is a writer. She's a poet and a bit of a culinary historian as well and a blogger on the blog um, American bestamericanpoetry.com. And Stacy has an article coming up soon in Savour on cast iron and collectors. Welcome to both of you. Glad to have you here. Great to be here. Linda. Thank you so much. Um, now let's talk. Talking about cast iron, you know, a lot of people. If you say 
they can they see if you say cast iron cookware people immediately think of their grandmother's crusty old greasy disgusting looking black skillet that they probably toss aside and a lot of people call it heirloom cookware but now all of a sudden it's the rage again and but it does have probably some of the longest history of cookware that we know of and I would like to jump right into that with you, Joel. And can you tell us where, when and where we pretty much trace the first cast iron cookware? Well, not surprisingly, since so much started in China, uh, there seems to be some indication from one of the articles in Scientific American that uh, cast iron, there was cast iron cookware probably around 600 B.C. in China. Now... We normally think of pig iron, which is basically the melting of the earth to get the iron, as sort of a preliminary stock material. Uh, But actually, pig iron is a form of cast iron. It just has a lot of impurities, uh, a lot of carbon content. So it's very, very brittle. It's called white cast iron. And uh, they were actually making it into things and very likely into cookware uh, in China in 600 B.C. Now, how did they make you know the the furnaces the fires hot enough to be able to to melt this down this ore down to that's to exactly cast it. that's exactly the question the heats of the furnaces are what govern a lot of things including cooking mm-hmm. uh but uh the as with when you put antifreeze into your car uh when you have things that are mixtures it depresses the melting point so you can melt it at a lower temperature mm. although it raises the boiling point So when you have pure iron, it has a huge temperature. So to melt pure iron is somewhere close to 3,000 degrees. But when you have it mixed in earth with lots of other things to make a mixture in which iron gets melted, it's probably only a little bit above the melting point of uh, copper and brass and stuff like maybe about 500 degrees. So you're talking about having an ordinary hearth fire with a bellows. And so that's what they would do. And they had stacked... Um, casting techniques. So they would have the iron melt, pour it into the top, and it would drip down through all the different molds, which was not a technique that seems to have been used any place else in the hmm. world that I know of. While it was continually being heated in the in the, yeah. in the fires. Yeah. Wow. So I mean that. So that really being that was a difficult process, and and getting those furnaces uh, that pretty much delayed the the actual manufacture a process of mass manufacturing of cast iron i would imagine well having it uh, in the low because anything that produces iron has to get the iron from someplace and so you either get it from meteoric iron or else you have to melt it like that and all throughout europe and the levant including if you ever heard the word serendipity which means something that's uh, sort of like by guess and by golly Mm -hmm. or luck or something that comes from the island of serendip which was actually salon where they have actually traced a, uh, a special kind of an oven that made use of the monsoon in that it had a kind of an airplane foil shape over the top of it. So when the monsoon ran over the top of the oven, it pulled air through holes in the side of the oven. It seems the only place where they actually had side ovens, and they produced a lot of the, oven, a lot of the iron that would later went to Damascus that was made into Damascus steel, hmm. uh, just like uh, this other kind with, with pig iron. You have all the major manufacturers that had steel, whether it was Toledo, Sheffield, or any other others in Europe. Uh, which starts uh, maybe in the 1200s, practically a thousand years later than 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 uh, China, all have 
from the heating of pig iron, but this one here was kind of an airplane-type form. So it's ancient, and steel we normally think of as being something that is very rarefied. Actually, you can make steel by either having wrought iron and adding carbon to it by folding and everything. For those who are into armaments and swords and things like that, you have the folding and, and, and then beating and folding again. You're actually adding carbon into it. Or you can have things like in the modern Bessemer process where you start with pig iron, which has a lot of the carbon, and you blow oxygen through it, mm-hmm. which makes it into carbon dioxide and gets rid of the carbon in it. So you can either go from either direction, from pig iron down to steel or wrought iron up to steel. But steel was, ob- was arguably, aside from pig iron, was produced before large amounts of cast iron were produced. Hmm, interesting. Well, you got into collecting cast iron by a very interesting little story, if you <laughs> would share that, because we are experiencing a very hot day here today. But you had a hotter tale. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, I was uh, cleaning off some paint in my barge where I lived during the 60s as part of a barge counterculture community. And, uh, and fortunately, it got into some of the, uh, the insulation and the, uh, started a fire that was out of control in about one minute. So um, I had to get out along with everybody else that was in the barge community. Uh, but the only thing that survived the fire was my cast iron cookware, my uh, leg burned, my crutches burned, a whole bunch of other stuff. The only thing that survived the fire... And then one of the guys who was a respite for anybody who needed something in the barge community, but he was often into his cups when he came back from the gin mill (laughs) on his hands and knees, uh, fell in and uh, passed away after nobody was there. And so uh, we all had this huge wake for him, and uh, we all took some of his things because he had no relatives, and I got two of his pots. And it was so the cast like, iron really could yes. take the. I mean, if anyone has ever seen pictures, or 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 in fact has visited, you know, blast furnaces in the steel, you know, steel mills like in Bethlehem, you know, Pennsylvania, I think, you know, the intensity of that. Oh, it can heat. take heat. Yeah, yeah, and and cast iron can take the heat. Well, now, Stacy, you um, did a lot of research on people who collect cast iron cookware. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, I did, and it, it came about because I visited an antique mall in upstate New York, where um, one of the sellers had a booth that was just chock full of only cast iron cookware. It's quite beautiful, and I wanted to buy some for myself. Uh, wasn't sure what I should get or how much I should spend on it, so that got me started, and that led me to a couple of the organizations that are, you know, devoted to collecting cast iron cookware. There's one called the Wagner and Griswold Society, and I went online and started talking to people. That led me to Joel, and people are actually quite passionate about the cookware and mm-hmm. using it, uh, displaying it in their homes. Joel has eight to 10,000 pieces. There's a fellow out in Washington State who's building a, an enormous house just to house his collection. So uh, Not a light collection. No, not a light collection. <laughs> so there's a really lively, active, knowledgeable, uh, committed community. They, they uh, share information. They have auctions. They have sales. And it's quite fascinating. Interesting. Well, you, and, and Joel, you belong to a group called the Kooks. What? Yeah, the kooks are the collectors of old kitchen stuff. We just, collectors of you know, old, old kitchen, kitchen stuff, <laughs> and uh, they just had their conference out in uh, Blue Ash, Ohio, 
along with the ACME, which is the uh, American Coffee Mill Enthusiasts. And uh, uh, so some of the other groups, there's the WAGs that uh, Stacy just mentioned, uh, and also the GNCCA, or GAIACA, which is the Griswold and Cast Iron Cookware Association, and uh, also the Ice Creamers. Uh, so, uh, which also I have an overlap in terms of ice cream cone makers. So each of these areas, some of them are more directly associated with it, and some of them a little more peripherally. Hmm. Well, let's uh, we're going to jump back a little bit because um, you've both mentioned Griswold and Wagner, and let's talk about um, when kind of you know five five hundred. You said around six about the sixth century BC. Um, we have evidence of cast iron cookware from China. And I, in fact, I saw a picture one time in a. Uh, we had a presentation for the culinary historians of New York, and there was a an art collector uptown, and it was a, a whole uh, display of chi- ancient Chinese uh, cookware and other food related ware. You know, cups, glasses, plates, and one of the oldest pieces they had, which was not a real one of the major pieces in the collection, but just really caught my eye, was an old brazier, in, which mm. you had described before the show began. We were talking about this, um, or Dutch oven type place. It was a you know a, a big pot with a. Now many of them were made out of bronze or or another materials. This happened to be a cast iron one with legs on it and quite beautiful. But then we come to England, and England started to produce cast iron and then moved on to America. So with throwing out these names like Griswold, Wagner, and of course everybody knows about Lodge, talk about the evolution a little bit of, of mass production, of the production for the market of, of uh, cast iron cookware. Well, normally I tend to think that, um, first of all, m- most production sort of follows where the markets are. So the first large amount of production in the U.S. was along the, um, the uh, uh, Atlantic seacoast. So you have most of the major um, uh, groups there. Then what you have uh, is um, you're talking about Saugus in about 1620 and its sister uh, foundry, uh, Braintree, uh, up in Massachusetts. Uh, but you also have Barstow in Rhode Island. You'll have... Um, uh, John Savory down in uh, uh, initially perhaps in New York, but then down also in Philadelphia, uh, different members of the uh, of the family it seems. Uh, then you have the move uh, slightly inland to the Troy and Albany area, uh, which was a major center of stove production, and the third generation was uh, out along the Great Lakes and down the Ohio River. Um, so you have this movement. Uh, uh, progressively west, and the uh, easiest form of transportation was, uh, of course, uh, up until the railroads started to go across country, uh, the easiest form of transportation was by boat. So the initial production is almost like small-scale production done uh, initially by uh, individuals, frequently stove companies, who sometimes made the stuff as go-withs. Hmm. So the cookware was as a go-with to help an incentive to buy the stove and sometimes was given away free. Uh, But by the time you get to some of the major companies like Griswold, Griswold had a special relation with the stove companies. Um, uh, Some of the other company, like Noise and Nutter, starting to produce fairly complicated pieces like teapots, which had hollow spouts, which were difficult to produce. So when they were starting to produce it, even though they made stoves, they started to make the hollowware for the other mm. companies, and that led the way to 
specialist companies that would then just make hollowware because they could, A, undercut the prices, but also leave the stove companies to make the stoves, which were going to bring them in a lot more money. And right. so that's basically what happened hmm. with John Savory initially and then some of their patterns being sold to uh, Griswold later on. So you would have uh, Griswold, um, uh, um, uh, W.C. Davis in Cincinnati, Wagner, um, uh, Pequa buying some of the molds from W.C. Davis and bringing them down to Pequa, and then uh, Chicago Co-op Hardware Foundry, and these things progressively moving west. But that was the general transition of mass marketing. Well, as a collector, which which companies, is it the piece that's more um, valuable, the more unique the piece, or is it the, the maker of the company? Uh, different people focus on different things. And so for me, I focus on the piece. I'm looking for weird, mm -hmm. and I've always done that. I really never cared what company it was made by. Something but unusual. Something that's unusual. Not, you know, yeah, in every, everyone's ca kitchen cabinet. Right. <laughs> And the things that make something seldom are either something that was made technologically obsolete, um, stylistically obsolete, like when you go from the Victorian times to modern, uh, or something that never worked to begin with, which was really wonderful. Um, but do you stick primarily with cookware? I stick only with cookware. Only with cookware. Mm -hmm. Cast iron cookware. I like to know the peripheral because in order to walk a straight line, you have right. to know the surrounding terrain. That's very good, yes. But uh, other people like... Griswold made a very large variety of things, and their quality was excellent. But then again, most of the qualities of the early turn of the century, whether it was Lodge or Wagner or Pequa, were all extremely high grade. Um, so basically, just look for things that ha are very finely cast. Get an old number three skillet of practically any of the companies that's really, really smooth, almost lickably smooth. It looks like iron cream when it's, when it's cleaned and everything. And use that as a template for all the other stuff that you're going to get. Hmm. Interesting. Well, you've brought with you a couple of very unusual pieces. If we could quickly describe that for our listeners, they can't see it, but let's, let's pick that most unusual-looking piece there on the end. Can we'll describe that? It's a long. It's it's kind of. I'm gonna say the looks a little bit like the nozzle on a hose. Then again, I'm not sure what else it looks like, but it's in two pieces, and you take it from there. Okie doke. Um, basically, cast iron is used for three purposes. Just to put it in a conceptual framework, which I like to do, it's either used put heat into something, which is most of our cooking vessels. Uh, it's used for pressure, which is another piece we'll talk about later, maybe. Uh, or it's used, and people don't think about it, to take heat out of something. Because if you can put heat in through iron, you can also remove heat by iron. And so what you would do is you would have a cold iron and you would pour a liquid. Um, and in, in one large use of it was for what was called clear toy molds, which were Victorian lollipops. Now, the up through from primitive times up to the Victorian era, society was held together what I call intersubjectively. It was held together by meanings and values and those kinds of images. After in the modern period, we're held together by structure and function. So we're not as much concerned with what the symbolic things are or what images are. But in the Victorian times, they certainly were. Mm -hmm. And so they had probably several hundred different kinds of things of... Uh, seals balancing balls on their nose or patriotic things. And this one here is, strangely enough, a religious thing, which is uh, a, an image of Christ on the cross. Now, this is a, a two-piece 
heavy cast iron object. It's probably not more than, what, five inches Yeah, five long. inches long, and you could hold it in your fist. It looks almost like a pipe that's been yeah, s- right. split the long way, and each side of the pipe has an impression on the inside. Good, yeah. And you would hold them together to make the, the complete pipe, and that's what you would pour. Yeah, you would turn this upside down, and you would pour your... Um, your, now, your, it would be cold, or it would be cold, right. and you might even put it in ice. And you would then pour your barley corn sugar, uh, which you had gotten from reducing the uh, the carbohydrate of the uh, of barley into a sugar, and uh, then you would put a lollipop thing. So the lollipop sugar would freeze in it. You could possibly also put a candle in it. As uh, uh, was suggested yeah. by, <laughs> who know uh, we don't know though. Do but we, right? to think of Lollipop something where you would have a uh, a lickable uh, um, uh, crucifix is kind of strange. It is a little weird. <laughs> it's weird. <laughs> well, we have some more unusual items to talk about too. As soon as we come back from the break, and we will also talk about a couple of recipes. service announcement from Heritage Radio Network. Tune in to the main course Sundays at 12 p.m. with hosts Patrick Martins and Katie Kiefer. They examine issues from the interconnected worlds of agriculture, cuisine, and sustainability. They sit down with key players in the chain from producer to consumer, farmers, distributors, chefs, activists, and journalists. The main course explores every important component of the eating experience, how the farmers raise their product, the distribution channels that move the product, how the chefs prepare it, and how ethics and policy affect everyone involved. Again, that's the main course, Sundays at noon, on the Heritage Radio Network. We are back on A Taste of the Past with Joel Schiff, a collector and quite a raconteur and also a historian uh, specializing in cast iron cookware. And Stacy Harwood, who is a writer and a, a poet, and um, I failed to mention that she, earlier that she also writes the Critics' Pick and Eat This Now columns for Time Out New York. 
and is, has written an article that will be coming out soon uh, with on Sephora about collectors of cast iron pieces. And Stacy, you you had some interesting uh, points to come up when you visited Joel's collection at his apartment in here in New York City. Yes, uh, Joel was talking earlier about uh, one of the re- one of the kinds of pieces that interest him are those that were unsuccessful when they were first produced because they were of limited utility. And he showed me a few of these and I was struck by, well, they may not have worked back then when you had uh, 12 mouths to feed. The family of 10, (laughs) right. (laughs) But um, a muffin tin that only has three muffins at a time seemed to me to be something that I would really love to have in my tiny New York City apartment and that a single person would really like right now. That's right. And uh, I wonder, it would be great if some of those things were brought back. They were quite small and... Uh, yeah, how many how many muffin tins today, you know, get burned up on one half because you're only making maybe four or six muffins? That's right. You know, who needs 12? That's right. right. That's right. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Interesting that some of these old pieces. Um, before the break, Joel, you were describing that lollipop maker, which I'm, I'm still not sure about that one. <laughs> but um, I don't know if I could bring myself to lick that image, but... <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me make one comment about okay. the, uh, the three-cup mold. This belongs to a category I call quintessentially male, which is Ah. especially things made by men, mostly men, no doubt, engineers, who make things when they have no clue whatsoever as to how a woman cooked. And so here you have a coal or wood stove, which once you start it, you can't turn it off. It's not like gas or kerosene or acetylene or some of the other things that were around at that later on. Once you start it, you have to use up whatever kind of fuel you have. And so to make something that only has three muffins uh, or five uh, is absolutely dumb. <laughs> so it took not one... Not to mention, it's, it's not good luck. It's an odd number. <laughs> <laughs> so one company, Waterman, started out with uh, three-cup molds, and it took him only a year to realize he should go to six, and within the next year he had gone to the Don't 11 or 12. 12. Right, right. But there's this learning curve. Even for, <laughs> even for men, there's a learning curve. Well, you brought with you another um, unusual-looking piece, and talk about molds, and it is kind of a mold, but, a, but a, looks like an old tortilla press or something, but it's tiny. It's only about three inches across. What do you think this and, and it does it do you know where it came from and who made it or anything? You haven't a clue. I would like it to have come from Maryland because uh this thing is about like uh like Linda said, three inches across. It's about uh, about an inch uh thick and then it has another round foot on it that's about two inches across. Uh, it has sm- tiny little handles that are about the size of your thumb, and they're about just that long. And they curve upwards on one side and down on the other. And not only that, it's painted. So uh, clearly this would not seem to be a piece of cookware for putting heat into something because not only does it have this extra ring, which is about a half an inch high, that keeps it away from the heat, but the handles are too short and would heat up too quickly. Uh, The extra uh, side, uh, the way they come up, was for pressure. And if you open it up, it has a hollow area about... Uh, you would have a small hamburger size. Teeny, uh, teeny hamburgers. <laughs> yes, teeny hamburger. A slider. Slider. Yeah, slider, right. It's about the size of a slider. And uh, my projection is is that this was for commercial production of uh, crab cakes or fish cakes. So that you would have a bunch of these in some kind of a holder that would make use of the bottom of the, uh, of the foot of the thing. And then when you put your crab cake, you could then come down 
on the, the weight of it, it would, would, would and press it together with mm-hmm. your fingers. Give it that nice, round, even, right. perfect circle. And if you needed to, you could pick it up and dump it out and mm-hmm. go for the next thing. Uh, so this belongs Cute. to a category of things that were used for pressure rather than heat. Mm-hmm. And they included the Springerly or press molds that had images on them. Tortilla presses we're maybe more familiar with right now. And also some of the Easter eggs in which you just wouldn't have... Uh, like uh, like some of the other cake molds, the uh, the rabbit and the lamb and so forth, but you'd mm-hmm. use them for crushed walnuts or coconut or whatever, which you would then enrobe, and but you would press against them to get the Easter egg form, and those would come out of let's say the Thomas Mills and Brother catalog. You could buy them in the confectionery things. So these things are used for pressure, not heat or removal of of heat. Well, now um, Stacy brought up a good point earlier in the show. Um, and the, for those who go to antique shows, uh, um, fairs and things, they pick up a piece of cast iron. You know, how do they know what it is? Especially if it's just marked, it doesn't have a maker mark on the bottom. It just says made in the USA. What does this tell us about the piece? Uh, generally, something that has made in USA, you may have some things that say, um, like the Griswold from a very early time will say Erie PA USA, but if it says made in USA, that's typically a fairly late mark. I think around uh, 1924 there was a law that was passed because um, some countries were marketing uh, materials, let's say coming in from uh, Jap- Japan, which would be listed as Nippon, and nobody knew where that was coming from. And that was considered unfair trade practice at the time. So a law was passed that had to indicate, you know, where the materials uh, came from. Not that that would make any difference at all today. Uh, but we would we could place it any time yes. after 1924. Yes. Oh, and good. the yeah. early things also, if you look at a piece of cast iron, if you see a casting mark, which is a line along the bottom, or sometimes uh, moved up to the rim for easier uh, easier uh, grinding and so forth. That would indicate that it was uh, definitely an earlier piece, and even earlier than that would be what we call a sprue, which would be a round casting mark, not a line. And those would be something from anywhere from the 1600s up to about, uh, let's say, 1720. Mm-hmm. These things change in about 100-year increments. Oh, well, gee, glad they don't you know, rush into things, right? <laughs> well, uh, as I had mentioned at the top of the show, Cast iron cooking seems to have undergone a bit of a, a renaissance, and I don't know about anyone else, but I, I've always loved my cast iron skillet, and there's nothing nothing quite like it. And I think one of the modern touches, too, that brought people back into it were the cast iron grill pans. People didn't, they loved to barbecue, they loved to grill, but of course inside of an apartment or a home, you couldn't, but you could heat up this cast iron pan to unusual temperatures and grill something. And then, of course, we see pictures of the uh, cornbread molds and things like that, but are there any uh, about cooking in cast iron? Um, actually, they say it's good for people with iron deficiencies because some of that iron does leach out of it, mm-hmm. right? That's right. But what about recipes? Um, what are some of the recipes that have endured that are best made in cast iron? Well, because it is such a good retainer of heat and will stay hot for a long time, uh, people often use it for braising. And uh, also people will talk about hauling out their chicken fryer a couple of times a oh, year yeah. because, it's, because, again, it will maintain a steady heat for a long time and you can fry up your chicken. So those are things that are typically used, you know, cast iron is used for. Uh-huh. I use mine for braising. I make, you know, braised lamb shanks and 
It's wonderful. Yeah, it's great because you can sear them on top of the stove and then That's stick the right. whole thing stick in, the in the oven. oven and, and then you can bring it to the table, and uh, it's great. Yeah, that's right. Serve it all, too. Yeah. Um, now, you uh, you were going to bring a treat for me today, I but was. you didn't. <laughs> so, yeah, speaking of New York City apartments in 85-degree weather, I, I did not want to turn on my oven this morning. I can't blame you. <laughs> but you have a recipe that you make for in, in a cast-iron mold for old yes. corn pone, right? Yes, that's right. And uh, I did buy a corn stick mold. Uh, it's a very common one, number 273. And it does have the impressions that make each piece look like a, an ear of corn. And the recipe I have is very simple. I copied it from an advertising pamphlet. It calls for one cup of cornmeal. Could, did you date that pamphlet at all? Was it? Uh, I think it was think? 50s, 40s, mm-hmm. around then, just based on the illustrations. One cup of cornmeal, three teaspoons baking powder, half a cup of flour, one egg, half a cup of milk, three tablespoons of sugar, so it's not a sweet and one tablespoon of oil. Mix it all together, 375, 15 minutes. In the mold. But you have to have the mold. You have to have the mold. And (laughs) I I just brushed mine lightly with some uh, neutral oil. Mm -hmm. And the cast iron gives it a really nice crust. Crispy. Yes. It's a a really nice tactile experience. Absolutely. Eating something that's been baked in in a cast iron. Yeah. Uh, my father was from the South, and my mother was not. And it was her her job to have to learn to make a proper cornbread in the old cast iron skillet. And I think it it took many years for that to yes. <laughs> ever be accomplished. But, boy, it was good. It's it was good. And, and you see the skillets with the dividers yeah. to, to yeah. make the, the pieces uniform. Right. Well, it, it, talking about these old skillets and molds and things, when... You know, when we go and we find some old in, in an antique shop, sometimes thrown in the corner will be a pile of old old cookware. Some of it looks a little skeptical because it is so rusty and over the edge. Is it possible to breathe new life into some of those rusty old kettles or uh, or um, skillets, skillets, or right? And pans. Um, nobody should be afraid of of light rust, grease, and paint. Uh, what you want to look for are things that can't be fixed by ordinary cleaning and polishing. So you don't want to get things that are cracked, uh, uh, broken, uh, heavy corrosion, scale, uh, things like that. Uh, warps, uh, if they're severely warped, will make it so that the heating surface is uneven. Hmm. But other than that, there are several methods. One is if you happen to have a self-cleaning oven, the easiest thing to do is put on some oven off, which actually is lye. By the way, it's the same thing as mm. nair that people mm. use. On their skin, women. yes. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and you put that on there, and you can either leave the, um, the, oven, off, the uh, oven off material, the lye, in the bag for a, a few hours, and then put it through a self-cleaning cycle, and that'll do it. Would you wipe the lye off first before you put it in no. the self-cleaning? No. no, because essentially you're also using the same kind of oven off for the oven uh, itself. The oven. Uh, right. Right. Or you can make up a lye bath, in which case you would get some lye, which is hard to get now. I think we'll stick with the oven off. I yeah. think that's mostly available to people, right? Fine. It's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit uh, more expensive than getting the batch stuff. The other thing that's recently come down the pipe, uh, pike is the uh, uh, de-electro, in which case you're taking off the outer one molecule ah. and anything that happens to be attached to it. Uh-huh. And this works for everything except the enameled pieces, which is enamel. We call it enamel. It's actually sintered glass. It's yeah, that's something glass. we didn't have a chance to talk about. Um, the companies like Le Creuset, and, and, and of course they go back even further than that, the 
right? The companies that then put a, a colored finish on a, an enamel, as you said, we say, enameled finish makes it look like a pretty, a pretty um, serving piece. I like the old solid black cast iron. Myself. My prejudice also. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have so much more we could talk about. I'm sorry that our time is up. We'll just have to do another show. Well, thank you so much, Joel Schiff and Stacy Harwood. Again, this has been Linda Palaccio for A Taste of the Past. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. The following is a public service announcement from Just Food. Help bring live chickens into food challenge communities through your donations to the Just Food City Chicken Project 2011. The City Chicken Project would not be possible without the volunteer hours, donations large and small, and the vibrant energy and ideas of the communities we work with. Just Food is a nonprofit organization that connects New York City communities and local and urban farmers with the resources and support they need to make fresh, locally grown food accessible to all. To donate, search on kickstarter.com for Just Food and find their City Chicken Project. For more information on Just Food, visit JustFood.org or call 212-645-9880. That's 212-645-9880. Let's keep making New York City a better place to live and eat. This is Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. The USDA has introduced the My Plate icon. I'm sure you've all seen that in the news, replacing the food pyramid that was in use for 19 years. This colorful icon contains portions of fruits, vegetables, grains, protein, and a little side dish of dairy. It can be viewed at www.choosemyplate.gov. It does look like a plate. It's divided into four quadrants. Um, They are surprisingly similarly sized. Vegetables, fruits, proteins, grains... Um, the veg are definitely a little bit larger than the other groups, but protein was really big. I was surprised. I thought we were supposed to eat less meat. Each component of the plate can be clicked on for a drop-down menu that explains portion size, healthy choices, nutritional information, etc. It offers significantly more information to consumers, but it is a little bit more complicated to use. We'll see if people actually look at it. This has been Behind the Scenes Food News with Katie Kiefer. Check out a small clip of Chef Smarty Pants, a.k.a. Erica Wides, talking about radishes on her show, Why We Cook. Those supermarket radishes were like that. They were all heat and no flavor and woody and tough, and they were always kind of beat up and buggy looking, and they looked like crap. I don't understand why they were sold. They were in that plastic bag all sealed up for like six months. Why buy them? We always put them into our salad growing up, and I would just pick them out. And my mom still buys them. She still buys those bags. To me, those bags of radishes are like the ultimate symbol of industrial produce. They're grown for size and for color, but they taste like balls of wood dipped in nail polish remover. I don't understand why people would eat them. So I never understood the appeal of the radish until... Want to hear more? Tune in live to Why We Cook every Tuesday at 6.30 p.m., where you can find all the old shows on our archives. Also, subscribe to the podcast and iTunes. Thanks for listening.